Give the team a hand, guys. Come on. You can have a seat. Thanks, guys. Well, uh, we told you last week, we tried to give you a heads up that we're going to flip some things around. At the end of this message that I give today, we're going to have an opportunity to hear a life change story from Rob Bielan. We're going to have an opportunity to worship, and we are going to have a sweet time together here today. Father, as we bust into your word, I'm asking you to do something really powerful in this room here today. I'm asking you to do in us what we can't do in ourselves, change us. And Lord, there's some hearts in here that are hurting. I'm asking you to heal them up. And I give you thanks that you're at work here this morning. There's no question about it. And we just stop to give you thanks for what you're going to do. I am truly fired up about your word today. But God, I want to keep in step with you, and we want to make sure that we are capturing your heart for people here in a powerful way. So, Lord, we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Dad told me, guys, he told me, tie it down and make sure it's secure. I was 16 years old, just got a driver's license, had a brand new truck, brand new to me. It was an old truck. But man, I was like a rocket with that thing. And Dad told me, tie it down and make sure it's secure. We were moving from Anchorage, Alaska, out to the home that Dad and I had just framed up. It's the end of the summer. I'm 16 years old. We've got an incredible new season. I'm moving all 50 of my Alaskan Huskies. We're going to be moved out there. But we needed a snow machine. And yes, if you go to Alaska, we don't call them snowmobiles. You call them snow machines. That's what they really are. They're machines for the snow, and they can fly. And we had a nice one. It was a snow jet model. And I had that thing loaded up in the truck, and I'm driving through to save a little bit of time right downtown Anchorage, Alaska. It's a beautiful, sunny summer day. And I was minding my own business, and the light went green, and I punched it, and oh, no, I heard a horrible sound. Clum, clum, and I look in the back of my truck, and there is no snow machine. Oh, no. And I look a little further back in my rearview mirror, and there's the snow machine sitting in the middle of the intersection. Cars are blocked, traffic's blocked. It's an absolute disaster. I get out of the truck. I appraise the situation. I jump back in. I throw it in reverse. I back up to the snow machine in the middle of the intersection. Out jump a few brave Alaskan dudes. Alaskan dudes jump into an intersection to help, let me just tell you. But there was one woman who was parked right there at the intersection. Lo and behold, a reporter with the Anchorage Daily News. <laughs> and she had her camera sitting right next to her. And next thing I know, the next day, unbeknownst to me, my dad comes up to me and says, Carl, what happened yesterday? There I am, page five, some kind of a byline that I think it read, young Carl Clausen is eager for the winter season. And there's our snow machine sitting in the middle of the intersection and dad had told me, tie it down and make sure it's secure. Oh, goodness sakes. You know, God's word is filled with wisdom. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree that sometimes the old guys know best? And wouldn't we agree that our Father knows best? Sometimes we don't see it, and sometimes we're in a hurry, and sometimes we don't want to take his counsel. But today we get some blazing counsel, and he is saying, tie it down and make it secure. What are we going to talk about? I'll be in the Sermon on the Mount again today in this series, Echo. But I want you to follow along as I jump to Mark chapter 10, verses 7 through 9. Jesus says, therefore, because of this whole issue of marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I like to call this leave, cleave, and receive. I've done this before with a football. Toss me from the audience. I'm not going to do it today because I've got to keep my track shoes on. But we are called to leave, cleave, and receive as a gift from God. And this isn't reluctance. 
This is someone who says, I'm bringing in. A man is initiator in a relationship, in marriage, and he says, I'm bringing her in. I'm receiving her as a gift from God. It's almost like a woman is for a man like a deep pass for a guy making a touchdown. It's like, whoa, bring that in. What a great gift from God, and I'm going to cherish this until the end. It's a beautiful picture of what God wants for us. And he goes on to say, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I've used this illustration a number of times, but it works perfectly. When I was building that house with my dad, I had a job of on the floor joist, putting down some subfloor adhesive with a big old caulk gun, big old cork caulk gun, and then I was putting down some three-quarter inch tongue and groove plywood. So I put, down that, I put down that bead of caulk on that floor joist. I laid over that four by eight sheet, laid it down. I got a sledgehammer, got that tongue and groove bead in together, and then I got out of my pack. You, if you're a framer, you get a whole wad of nails, not one at a time, and you just shuffle them. And I was set and sink, set and sink, which means you hit the nail twice if you get good at it. And by this time in the summer, I was getting good at swinging a hammer. So I'm boom, set, sink, set, sink, 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 and we're just knocking that thing together. And we're making hay that day. We, uh, I don't know what we framed up, probably 500 square feet of exterior and interior walls. I mean, we were moving. So the next morning when I got up, I was a little bit alarmed because my dad could always, he got into that deep rim sleep easier than I did, and we were sleeping in a camp or on our property, but I got up and I heard something that was scary. Nothing because usually by this time I heard the radial arm saw or a chop saw or something going. My dad was always on at 6 a.m., no one around the lake. He's out there working away. So I got up, threw on my pants, and I walked outside, and I walked up onto that subfloor that we had just built the night before, and I said, Dad, what in the world's going on? And he looked at me and he said, Oh, Carl, we got a problem. I said, Well, what's the problem? He said, Look here. And he looked down at the subfloor, and then he said, now I want you to look at this print. And he said, look at the subfloor and look at the print. And he said, we got a problem in that we've got a stairwell coming right into the middle of your mom's kitchen. And here's why. We had a flop print. It meant that everything that we saw this way, we actually framed this way. So every time we pulled the tape, we were pulling it the opposite way. Very difficult. I'd say splurge the extra 500 bucks, get them printed the right way. But we didn't, and so we're doing a flop print, and we're laying this thing out, and he said, we messed up, man. I've got a stairwell coming right into your mom's kitchen while I'm 16. And I told my dad, as I've told some of you before, Dad, every good woman wants a stairwell right in the middle of her kitchen. <laughs> Don't you know that's a gift to mom? He's like, Carl, no, we're ripping up what we did yesterday. I go, ripping up what we did yesterday. And he says, it won't be too bad, I promise you. Let's go. So I had a cat's paw and a crowbar, and I had a wonder bar. That's something that you can get underneath the joist with. And I'm like, this won't be too bad. I pulled out the ring shank nails, got ready to go. I reached down, grabbed that four by eight tongue and groove plywood, and I'm like, ooh. What in the world's going on? There's no nails in here. I start chipping away at plywood. And pretty quick, I'm chipping away at plywood to get a four by eight sheet up. I got the whole piece of plywood in little pieces like this. Because on every joist where I put that subfloor adhesive, it had bonded together overnight so well that you could tear everything else apart except that. That is marriage. What God brings together, let no man tear apart. And here's why. The collateral damage when we go messing with what God has done is incredibly deadly. This is why people that go to the courthouse and they don't even claim to know Christ feel the grief and the pain and the shame and all that disappointment when they split the sheets. Because what's going on is not before a judge, it's before the maker of heaven and earth. That's what's happening. Tie it down and make sure it's secure. Got a message title for you today. Just simply, let no man tear apart. Let no man tear apart. 
I've got a graph that I want to show you here today. We're going to have some sobering moments. On this graph on the screen, it's a divorce chart all the way from 1860 through to almost 2020. And on this chart, it reveals a few things. It reveals, look at the limited amount of divorces per thousand in population back here in 1860. Is that amazing, guys? People that came together stuck together. Now, we see a rise in this thing incrementally, but then we see a great depression. And a lot of you maybe don't understand this, but this is one of the great mysteries of marriage. Adversity can actually bring people together. Now, there were some other issues going on, like monetary inability to keep the, the they, they couldn't split the sheets. It's like, boy, we better hang together here. We're barely putting bread on the table. But if we move further along this diagram, we see end of World War II, massive spike in divorce. And you got to ask the question, what's going on there? Well, let me give you the answer. Right before World War II, and it was when things were heating up, and as the boys were going off to war, the boys grabbed a girl and ran to the courthouse or to a pastor and said, marry us off, because nobody wanted to go to war single. And so there were a ton of marriages that happened. The women were left back at home. We found out that the misogynistic, and I'm going to be bold here today, but super clear, the way we used to do marriage in our country was not healthy. This, this little Betty Crocker mentality that women are best barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen has got to go bye-bye forever. But women during World War II were realizing, woo, we're making bullets. We're building tanks. I'm not going to be a subject to my man when he gets home. And what happened was massive spike in divorce. But is it even where we are today? We read on. Look at no-fault divorce laws. If you see where that falls on the timeline, it's about 1970 or 71. In about 1969 through 75, almost every state in the United States of America adopted no-fault divorce. And all that meant is that the dissolution of a marriage does not require a showing of wrongdoing by either party. That's all it meant. Now, up until that time, it was new and different. And some of you are young people going, wow, you had to have like a massive reason to get divorced back in the day? You did. And I'll give them to you what they were here in just a moment. But that's what was going on. Now, when no-fault divorce took off, there were a lot of men and women going, whoo, I'm out of here. A little bit of conflict arise. It's like, no mas. I am done with this dude. I'm gone. The question on this chart is, well, Pastor Coral, aren't we doing great? Look at the numbers here. We went and peaked up in 1980, and it's coming down. And by the way, we don't have real, really solid census report beyond this. We've got some preliminary data. But what we do have, look at 1980. Notice there's a fall. And then at 1980, it's a continued fall let me show you another chart that parallels this. Give me that next chart, guys. This is the number of cohabitating unmarried adult couples of the opposite sex by year in the United States. And look what happened in 1980. We actually have more than triple the amount of people between 1980 and 2008 who are shacking up. And by the way, I'm not going all angry pastor like, oh, you shouldn't be shacking up. I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't know Jesus, honestly, and you don't believe in God and the inspired word of God, you have no document that can guide your life into that. Even though I think it's the best thing to go, go with, and I'm going to prove it to you with some hardcore stats here in a moment. Marriage committed, man, woman coming together, leaving, cleaving, and whoop, receiving, it's awesome. It's the best sauce out there for love and intimacy. But if you don't know Christ, I don't, I don't want to foist myself on someone who doesn't believe in Jesus or believe the Bible. It's honestly, it's to be understood that they would think that's crazy. But make no mistake about it. Just like God invented sex, I talked about last week, God invented marriage. 
He digs them both, and he designed us for it. This is why people sometimes, and I've counseled so many couples, my bride and I have, some of whom don't even know Jesus, and sometimes a woman will say, oh, I just, I just want so bad to, to, I think I want him to marry me. And the question is why. It's because God put it in our hearts. God did that. And it's a great work that he's done. What was the law before no-fault divorce? What was it? Adultery, abuse, or irretrievably broken were the words that were used. So the question is, what in the world constituted irretrievably broken? Let me give you something. This is amazing. So some of you that are young are going, wow, you mean to tell me you either had to have adultery or physical, really it was physical abuse, which, by the way, I'm going to clarify where we stand as elders and as a pastor here, as a church. And it might surprise some of you. But under the law, as it currently stands, it was written, there is only one ground for divorce, the ground being that the marriage has irretrievably broken down. To show that the marriage has irretrievably broken down, it is necessary to rely on one of the following five different facts. Ready for these? The other person has committed adultery. The other person has behaved unreasonably or with physical abuse. Desertion by the other person for two years or more. That you have lived separate or apart for two years and both consent to the divorce or... Number five, that you have lived separate and apart for five years, and that's when the other person's consent is not required. You might say, oh my goodness, that's archaic. Do you know what I just read to you? I just read to you the law of the United Kingdom until guess what year? April 6, 2022. That was the law of the UK. There's all kind of lawyer pieces written on this thing. They're saying, finally, we caught up with the rest of the world and all this stuff, but I got to tell you, there was a story of a man married 40 years to a woman in the UK in 2018, and he wanted away from this woman something fierce, and he came and he said, Judge, I can't stand this woman anymore. Judge said, didn't you love her once upon a time? Oh, I did, Judge, but I want away from her. This is not a joke. This is a true story. He said, well, ma'am, what do you want? She says in tears, I, I want to work it out. The judge says, I don't see anything that's keeping you from mending this thing up. Old timer, go love this woman. Within six months, he said it was the greatest verdict the judge had, could have ever laid down for them as a couple. The introduction of no-fault divorce in America happened in the early 70s. A lot of people say, oh, we're becoming like Europe. Actually, in some cases, Europe's becoming like us. But where has it really gotten us? In Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32, look at what Jesus said. Now we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We got two whole verses for tackling today. Look at what he says. It was also said, so Jesus is looking back to the Old Testament, and you're going to see the context here, because if you just take it at face value and don't understand what the Old Testament says, you can't have a clue what he says, and you're going to read the wrong stuff into it. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. What? And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, those are really encouraging words. We have people here in this auditorium that have suffered divorce and gone through things. And some of you, if you don't have the full context of this passage, could feel unnecessary shame. So what's, what's going on here? What's being said? We can't fully understand Matthew 5, 31 to 32 without first understanding what Moses had spoken about marriage and divorce. And a lot of people said, and it's just flatly untrue, that somehow 
What Moses is indicating, or what Jesus is indicating here, is that a certificate of divorce is a good thing. Actually, it's not. In the book of Mark, we find he says, only because of your hardness of heart did I let you give a certificate of divorce. So he raises the stakes even higher. What we have in the Sermon on the Mount is an established grid criteria, high bar that cannot be met in our strength. And here's what I need you to know. You can't live the law of God. You certainly can't live the standard of Jesus. Jesus is throwing us right back to the foot of the cross saying the only way you're going to survive this is to be on your knees. This is where the power is born. So what was Jesus quoting? Well, I'm going to read it to you. It won't be on the screen. This is what Jesus was quoting here. When a man takes a wife and remarries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, now you might be saying, oh, my word, this is so misogynistic. No, it's not. Hang on. Because he has found some indecency in her, and the word indecency here was taken by two different rabbinical kind of schools, and one was made to include everything. But Kyle and Dalich, Hebrew scholars say, this is a word that clearly describes there is adultery in this marriage. If you found some adultery in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, meaning when Moses wrote down the book of Deuteronomy, he's saying this is a custom already in this society. You're giving certificates of divorce out. But let me give you the bigger yes. And I'll get to it in a moment here. But he goes on to say, give the certificate of divorce. But by the way, Moses goes on to say in verse 2, 3, and 4 of Deuteronomy 24, he says, if the guy who said goodbye to the woman after she gets married and that new husband keels over dead or doesn't make it or he boots her out, don't be thinking you can go back and get this woman again. What is the principle here? It's the sanctity and the beauty of being together in a one covenant relationship that's found in Genesis 2 and Genesis 1. How do I know this? Because one of the coolest verses about getting married, and if you're not married and you hope to get married one day, you, you want to know what in the world you should do for the first year of marriage. Spend as much time at home having sexual and emotional intimacy as you can for your first year. It's quiet in here right now. Can a pastor say that in church? Yes, God invented sex. Some of us in the evangelical world, when we have sexual intimacy, we think God's looking down going, oh, there they go again. <laughs> no. God invented this, guys. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty but he shall be home with his bride. No, I was going to ad lib. I'm going to read it clean. <laughs> but he shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife. And you know what happy with his wife means in the Hebrew language? Ready for this? It means happy with his wife. <laughs> whom he has taken as his bride. I'm not going to put a graph up here because there's so much to it, but I want to give you three perspectives in the, in the church today of divorce and remarriage and where we stand here as a church, and I can say this with total confidence. First off, there's some that have a permanence view that if you get married, baby, that's it. No matter what happens, come hell or high water, you're staying in. Physical abuse and other abuse included. Let me just tell you right now, let me be really clear. I need everyone to listen closely. I don't want anyone to miss this. That is so unbiblical. You can cite Genesis 2.24 and Malachi 2.13-16 2, and even Mark 10, let no man tear apart. But God is not saying there are no clauses that can get a woman or a man out of marriage. What he's saying is, I hold the institute of marriage so high, don't be watering this baby down. So the permanence view is bogus. 
A New Testament view that's right out of Genesis 2, 24, Malachi 2, Mark 10, Matthew 5, 1 Corinthians 7, is that there could be two reasons for divorce. Adultery and sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbeliever. But you combine that with what I find clearly in the Older Testament, and this would be the totality of the biblical view, there could be four reasons for divorce. Adultery, sexual immorality, physical neglect or abuse, actually emotional neglect or abuse, but be careful here. Harsh words and reckless tongue does not constitute emotional abuse. If it did, almost no one could stay married in this auditorium. We get reckless with our words at times, and then abandonment of the unbeliever. In general terms, let me be super clear here. And I want to paint a really clear biblical picture. Some of us believe wrongly, because we've heard it, that somehow there is no grace in the kingdom of God. Grace is God's power to live as we couldn't in our own steam. Grace should never become a bungee cord for sin. It's like, I'm going to go commit sin. I'm jumping out of the plane. Woo! Bungee cord. I got his grace. I can do it again. Grace isn't to be stretched. Grace isn't to see how far and how much we can get away with. Grace enables us to live as we never could apart from God. So it's not a green light to abuse grace, but it's an absolute green light to experience the power and presence of God. So let me be clear. I would never, ever, nor will our elders ever, ever tell anyone, get a divorce. But it's quiet again. And I want to explain to you why. I always leave room for a miracle. Now, am I saying a woman should stay or a man should stay in something? No way. Physical, emotional abuse, I will be the first pastor on the phone, in my car, getting a woman out of a home like that. Separation is awesome. The permanency of divorce might happen, but sometimes in separation we get an opportunity to see God do some work that is flat out amazing. So I will never tell you get a divorce. I will always say to you, if this should happen, and in this room, I would believe it to be almost a rare exception, if one at all. Got a bunch of committed Jesus followers here that are going for it with the Lord and those of you online. That's a decision that you would have to make, and in the parameters of God's word, are there out, so to speak? Yes, but... Just because we are free to go, I want you to hear me. You're also to free, free to believe God for a miracle. I have seen, and there are in this room today, miracles of grace. And if you match last week's message with this week's, and we go, any man that looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her, we got a whole bunch of miracles in this room. I want to give you one other thing, because some of you are sitting here today, oh, Carl, Pastor Carl, you don't know my sexual past. You don't know how many times I've split the sheets. No, I don't, but Jesus knew about this woman sitting at this well in Samaria, and he sat down with her, and he was full of grace and mercy and love, and, and then he read her mail, because he knew it before he sat down with her, and he said, why don't you go get your husband? I want to tell you all about this living water that's going to spring up in your soul, and it's going to change you forever. And she said, I have no husband. And he said, you're right. You had five of them, and now you're shacked up, young lady, and I love you still. Woo! 
Sometimes it would appear that God has more grace than we're willing to give. I got one big idea for this message, and it's here right now. Jesus is passionate to keep couples together because the blessing can be amazing and the collateral damage of divorce is devastating. And let me prove it to you in some heartbreaking ways. Before I put these slides up, I just, I just need to emote about this for a moment. We have so underestimated, we have so underestimated the impact of breaking up a nuclear family, the impact of dismantling the nuclear family. And I know that that's become so popular, but I'm telling you, it has no long-term legs because a culture that takes that out to an extreme just begins to break down. Why? Because when a boy or a girl are raised into this world, they were uniquely designed to have a mommy and a daddy invest in their heart. There are things that women and men can uniquely do that they must do. And you might say, well, you're just sounding like one of those preacher dudes. Well, I am, but on top of that, I've got some facts to back it up. Could we talk about the magnitude of the epidemic? One in three children are born to unmarried parents today. An estimated 24.7 million children do not live with their biological father. 43% of urban teens live away from their father. 42% of fathers fail to see their children at all after divorce. Since 1960, the rate of U.S. boys without fathers has quadrupled. But the consequences are more devastating. The consequences are 68% of all teen suicides come from fatherless homes. Fatherless homes account for 90% of all runaways and homeless. 85% of fatherless homes have children with behavior problems come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. And 85% of youth in prison come from fatherless homes. Don't tell me we can play games with the way God designed a family to be. So what do we do? I want to answer a quick question. What is God's vision for marriage then? What is it? I want to give you two really cool things, and I want to give you some blue sky out there that you go, yes, yes, because I promise you, we need to be known as people, not what we stand against, but what we stand for. Don't be against divorce as much as you're for robust, love-making intimacy in the context of a husband and wife together. Woo! Cheer it! Champion it! Talk about it! One of the greatest things I do for my love for my bride is I brag on my bride because there's a lot of things to brag about my bride for me. And sometimes she tells me, you got to stop doing that. <laughs> but I brag on my bride for a couple of reasons. One, when I get into a new work environment, it immediately lays down the parameters. I am a one-woman man. And when I lay down those parameters, man, it's so clear for everyone, including myself. But then when I cheer for my bride in my heart, I'm like, yeah, there are awesome things about my bride. Want me to list a few right now? No, she's, she would absolutely tear me up when we got out of here, so I'm just gonna leave it be right now. <laughs> What's God's vision for marriage? The first of it is found early on. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. I want you to hear me. 
This isn't in the context of just man and woman, boy and girl. It's in the context of bringing together because we're going to find in chapter 2 there was not a helper. And we're going to explain helper because some of you are like, oh, yeah. Now we're talking about hamburger helper. That's what a woman is. No, we're going to explain it clearly right from the word. But I need you to hear me right now. One of the primary functions in a vision for marriage is to reflect God's power and character to the world. Reflect it. That's what God wants to do. In the image of God, he created him. We are image bearers, and nothing bears the image of God more than when a man and a woman are walking, talking, processing stuff, sitting on the couch. How are you feeling? How can I pray with you about that? And that intimacy is contagious, and neighbors see it, and kids see it. It's awesome. And when I see this thing about being a reflection of God, I've shared this story at least once here before, but it's the, it's the best one I have for this. My buddy Calvin and I were just little guys. We went up to Mount McKinley with some adults. When we got to our campsite, we got up early the next morning. We went down to Wonder Lake. Wonder Lake was the last lake that you could drive to at the foot of Mount McKinley, and it's a beautiful lake. And we went down there, and we're doing some fly fishing, and nothing was hitting at all. And we said, hey, let's make a walk toward the mountain, see if there's any clear streams out here. And we're walking through tall grass. Now, you got to understand something. Middle of the summer, early in the morning, bears are everywhere. So we're doing what you do. When you're in bear country, you make noise. And so we grab some sticks, and we're just beating the grass. We're singing and yelling and walking, going, hey, just keeping them away, because they don't want to eat you, generally. <laughs> Thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> make it more fun on your next adventure to Alaska. <laughs> And so we're just like, hey, hey, we're just whacking away at this, got our fishing poles over our shoulders and got our tackle boxes over the other shoulder. We're just walking, walking, walking through tall grass, man, and all of a sudden, whoa, I stepped over something. I'm like, Calvin, he goes, what, what happened? I said, look here. We pull back the tall grass, and as we pull back the tall grass, guys, the most pristine, clear, freshwater stream you've ever seen, untouched by man. It was beautiful. It was about this wide, and it was cut out of bedrock, and it went down. We couldn't even see where it went, but we could see the cut in the rock went down, and then it went off one direction and then back another way, and I go, there might be some grayling in here, Cal. He said, yeah, there might be. And so how do you fish in a stream that's this wide? Do you stand back 20 feet and Try to aim at it? No. We straddled it. <laughs> and we stood over the top of that stream, and I got a little dry fly, and boom, dropped it on the top of that creek, picked it up, boom, dropped it on the top, dropped it down a third time, bam, a grayling comes up out of that crystal clear water, hit that thing, scared me so bad I almost fell right in the drink. And then that gray leg's hooked on that fly, and he's, he's swimming down, and he's swimming up, and he's jumping into the grass, and he's jumping back into the creek. Me and Calvin were just carrying on. It was so much fun. And we got done fishing. <laughs> we played that river out, and it must have been two hours of having a ball. Me and Calvin just straddling that river, just fishing up a storm. Then it came time to go, and we almost missed the big payoff. It came time to go, and God gave Calvin or I, I forget who, enough presence of mind to go, whoa. Because as we turned to go, we were on our knees, putting everything away, and we were going to get up, and we could barely believe our eyes. In this little, insignificant, small, dinky, but bountiful stream was reflected all 20-plus thousand feet of Mount McKinley like I'm on a high-def flap screen. 
20 plus thousand feet of mountain is here in this little insignificant stream. That's what God wants to do with your marriage to this world. In your life, in your love, in your ups and in your downs, the image of God reflected to the world around us going, this is his plan. We need an awakening in the church where we're not talking and knowing about what we stand against. Stop that. That's called angry evangelicalism. That has never turned one person onto Jesus. We need to be known for what we stand for. You can do this. Single people pray for it. Ask God to give you someone that one day you're going to kneel down and you're going to see, whoo, we're a reflection of a big God through imperfect beings to this world. And then in Genesis 2, 18, we find, then the Lord God said, this is not a good thing. Adam should not be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is a tragic translation of this word. Tragic. Wayne Grudem is my good friend. He translated the English Standard Version, and I'm actually going to call him and go, can we do anything about this? I actually am. ESV, by the way, is one of the best translations out there. <laughs> Play, don't, don't hear me knocking the ESV. It's a phenomenal translation. But this thing misses it like the broad side of MacReady's barn. Helper is such a lame word here. God uses the Hebrew word ezer here. Ezer describes Eve in Genesis. And it's typically translated in most Bibles, helper. And churches generally have used this to encourage women to pursue domestic duties in marriage and motherhood. These are great, but they are incomplete. Oh, those are great things. They're awesome things. But Proverbs 31 was a working woman that was champion. She was a seller of purple. She was out in the marketplace. She was mixing it up. Godly men are not afraid of strong women. Poofter men are afraid of strong women. <laughs> Carolyn Custis James writes in her book, Half the Church, Recapturing God's Global Vision for Women, and she is a phenomenal woman of God. Carolyn likens Ezer to warrior. As the 19 other times it is used and mentioned in the Bible. It is placed within a powerful, get this ladies, military context. Ezra is used three times to describe Israel when they were under attack and that God would be their Ezra. But it is used 16 times to describe the act of being a warrior and in fact striking a blow. Ladies, you are princess warriors, married or not, designed and uniquely designed to help a man who is otherwise incapable without your assistance to do what God has fulfilled and called him to do. Come on, ladies, give it a little props here. Nathan Campbell highlights that it means something more than necessarily than a necessary just ally. It means warrior princess. And I think the best transliteration of Ezra is to strike a blow on behalf of your man. Whoo! point here is simply this yes we can reflect God's power and character to the world but we can also impact the world through mutual love 
and commitment. I am such a changed man because of the power of Christ. But God has changed me more through the love and the direct talk and the challenging and the getting up in my grill in love that my wife's given me than any other person on this planet. <laughs> ladies, single ladies, don't marry an unteachable man. He will never let you be the Ezra you were called to be. Men, married men, I know sometimes it drives you crazy. Too bad. She's trying to strike a blow on your behalf. It's going to be interesting car rides home today, let me tell you. <laughs> Bottom line. Dad was right. Tie it down and make sure it's secure. And you know what? God was right. Tie it down and make sure it's secure. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you that you, God, have a plan for life. I thank you that you invented marriage, you invented sexual intimacy, you invented all these things that sometimes, quite frankly, the church has called bad. But we say to you today, you are good. Say it with me. You are good. Say it like you mean it. You are good. And we lift your name today. We thank you that you are the one who is at work. We thank you that it is to your glory that we bear much fruit, showing to be disciples. We thank you that this little battle unit called man and woman is the first battalion you ever put together. Oh God, thank you for the vision of your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you that your word screams, this is what I'm for. God, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. We got Rob Beelan here. Before we sing our last song, tell us, man, when did God call you out of darkness? How did he change your life, Rob? Well, it's been a process. Um, I would like to say when I was maybe eight as an altar boy, but I remember when we were with the ambassadors a couple weeks ago, I was reflecting on this. As an altar boy and all the statues and stuff, I was into being an altar boy for the money, not the relationship with Christ. And as and to realize this, 40 years later, over 40 years later. It's a big breakthrough. It, it, it is. And I found myself going farther away from God. You know, I went to Catholic school, and if I keep reflecting, I was going farther away from God. Hmm. It, it took someone scaring me with the book of Revelation. That's the first book I read. I was petrified. I remember my dad coming into the room. What are you reading? I go, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And his first question is, Why? It's a good question. Um, that is when the encounter, the relationship was starting. God was pursuing me wow. big time at that point. Rob, you got a passion to live your faith. You're a no condemnation kind of guy. I see the grace you give me as a brother. I, I, want, I want you to look at me. I see the grace you give your family and how much you love your bride. And I want to affirm you and tell you it's an awesome thing to witness. I see this guy come in. He'll tell me he's a school teacher. And he says, oh, man, God's using me for this. And he would never say that up here. But God's using me in this way and using me in that way. And I get to pray for these people and pray for those people. And it's one of the coolest things in the world. 
Thank you. What, what, is the, what is the most important thing you've been learning about God as of late? Most important thing? The power of his word. And the more you dive into it, the more he reveals to you, he manifests himself to you. He, the Holy Spirit starts, I believe, for me, tugging me in directions I never thought I would go. Because you're in the word. Correct. Yeah. I got to tell you something, Rob Beelan. You've been here since we almost got this thing going. This guy makes a long haul every week to be here. He faithfully serves, and I've never seen you grump. Maybe one time I saw you grump. That's it. We're being real here. But this is what I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart. You are a man. And I love the way you love your bride. And I love the way I know you got some kids here. I love the way you love your family. And I want to pray over you right now. Can I say one more thing? Sure. Um, I'm a chaplain for Cook County Jail. And I was just thinking that it would be so cool for my wife to see some of the things I do because everything I do is in confidentiality. I can't go back and say, hey, I did this, that, and the other thing. And a couple weeks ago, she'll remember this, this was amazing. We went out to dinner and our reservation was late for some reason. I was aggravated, had a migraine headache, everything got pushed back. But God had an appointment. And to go with your message, the mutual love that we had. I had my chaplain jacket on and someone stopped us on the way out, like, what do you do? Told her what I did. We talked for maybe a, maybe three minutes. It was under five minutes. And this woman opens up her heart and says, you know, I work for the, for, for, I'm a deputy sheriff, blah, blah, blah. And can I tell you, and my, maybe my wife could give the story a little bit better. She was contemplating suicide. So we were in the middle of a restaurant. We were praying. So she got a glimpse of what I do at Cook County Jail, and she was able to say things to this woman I didn't know what to say. And that's what we need to do in the spheres of our influence. And sometimes we think we could just impact family, friends. You know, God's a bigger God than that. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit wherever you go. That was a witness. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for Rob. We thank you not only that you're using him, but that greater days are yet to come. Fill him up to overflowing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.